0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: The eminent scientist, Alfred Russell Wallace, has revived the theory that Earth is at the center of the stellar universe. This uh, distinguished natural philosopher has uh, reaffirmed our planet as the only habitable globe in the heavens <laughs> a world furthermore constructed for the sole benefit of man he's <laughs> <laughs> got a lot of folks excited about the notion my dear mr clemens why do i think you are not one of them <laughs> Your suspicions, Madam Guinan, are undoubtedly based upon your keen observational skills. (laughs) Now, if you'll permit me, I'll continue my character assassination unimpeded. My dear Mr. Clemens, please do.
2: Please do.
0: it is Thursday, April 10th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just Right.
1: Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything
2: will be
0: Welcome to the show today here on CHRW, where 519-661-3600 is a number you can call in to join in live on the show. Operator Sarah will be picking up the phone for you, and she can get you through. Just give her your first name and say hi if you want to talk any of the subjects that we'll be discussing today. Of course, you can email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. And to solve all of your just-right needs, just visit online www.justrightmedia.org where you will find that number, the connections to CHRW, and to an archive of every episode of Just Right from day one, which goes back almost a year now. Today on the show, does truth always have to be a victim to activism and politics? Carbon dioxide, we hear a lot about it. The invisible problem, says Al Gore. And is Al Gore one of the bad people? I think maybe he is. I'm going to be talking about that later. But first, I want to conclude, or carry on rather, with something I started at the end of last week, basically from physics to metaphysics, where uh, I actually took a look at, you know, what scientists are thinking about some of the latest theories of the universe. And we left off with a real cliffhanger last week where, you know, wow, we found out that, like, the universe is expanding. And it's it's expanding faster and faster all the time. And what does this mean for us? So today we move a little bit from the physics to metaphysics, but just for a quick review of the key points that we went over last week, we basically established uh, that what scientists have found uh, from Hubble on is that the universe is expanding, and the further away galaxies are from us, the faster they recede from us. So that means the further something is away from us, uh, the faster it's moving Away, Things that are a little closer to us are also moving away, but not as fast a rate. I think this is very significant. I just started thinking about this, but that'll come up later when we talk about gravity. And we also determined that the Big Bang did not happen at some particular location in the universe far away from us, but happened everywhere at the same time. Uh, You know, whatever that might mean in the context of space-time. And, of course, we discovered the cosmological principle that states that our view of the universe is representative, meaning that no matter where you are in the universe, you'll always feel like you're in the center. And we also discovered that there are basically two differing views of the universe, the infinite universe, which expands forever in all directions, and the finite universe, which basically curves in on itself. Now, if you want to hear more of the details, by all means, uh, check out last week's show, which is still online on the archives. Now, I want to state that before, you know, we draw any firm conclusions about the nature of the universe, that you don't do that in isolation isolation of the big picture. You take kind of each piece of information, set it aside for a moment, and you wait till you see all the parts before jumping to any big conclusions, which often tend to contradict each other when you look at each part, or seem very counterintuitive, certainly, upon first glance. Uh, Really, one of the reasons that I think it's important to do this is to not know all the physics and and every formula and remember every detail of the universe, but certainly to get a sense of what the universe is about, because physics is basically that study, and it underlies everything else, and that's what philosophy, proper philosophy, real philosophy is based on, metaphysics, which is where we will be moving on to today. Now, of course, I haven't even touched upon Um, other key elements and fundamentals of universal theory such as light or gravity or even quantum physics, which are each worthy of a mention on their own and certainly I intend to do so on future shows as we continue our journey from physics to metaphysics. Now, metaphysics, of course, is that branch of philosophy that investigates the principles of reality uh, in a larger picture, transcending any particular science, looking at everything in the bigger picture and trying to put it all together. Uh, and which traditionally includes cosmology and ontology, which I referred to last week, which is really the philosophical theory of reality. And for a philosophical theory of reality, whenever I go there, I I always turn to the works of uh, the objectivists, which of course were started by Ayn Rand. And one thing a lot of people might not know about Ayn Rand as a philosopher is during her, when she was still alive and, and, and spreading her philosophy and actually putting it together, which, which essentially started with Aristotle, she would have workshops with scientists and engineers and astronomers and physicists who would just flock to her to ask questions about their particular um, you know, discipline in science and she would answer questions to them that like you'd think she was there in the lab right beside them and she understood a lo- as much about their work as they did. And a lot of those workshops were actually recorded and uh, are in the back of one of the books that uh, is put out by Ayn Rand called Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology which of course is the study of how, how we know what we know. Now, Leonard Peikoff is, uh, is one of the people who is an objectivist, and he writes in The Philosophy of Objectivism on the, uh, how, how philosophically you look at the universe. And, and here's what he has to say, basically. He says that the universe is the total of everything that exists. And we're not talking just about the earth or the stars or the galaxies, but everything, even the things we don't know about yet. So he says, obviously, there can be no such thing as having a cause of the universe, And there's a reason for that, because time is a a measurement of motion. I know we don't feel it as such, but it's really a relationship, it's a type of relationship. Time applies only within the universe, and that's when you define a standard. You pick a standard, and that's your standard of time, such as, for example, the motion of the earth around the sun. If you take that as a unit of measurement, then you can say this person has a certain relationship to that motion if you've existed for three revolutions we say you're three years old but when you get to the universe as a whole obviously no standard is applicable you can't get outside the universe there is no outside the universe and in this sense the universe is eternal in the literal sense in the non-temporal sense it is out of time in other words like time is inside the universe it's not the other way around and space just like time is a relational concept. It does not designate an entity, but a relationship which exists, again, only within the universe. The universe is not in space any more than it is in time. When you say that you're in a position, that means that you have a certain relationship to the boundary of some other container or other point that you've picked as the thing to which you're in position, you know, relation to. For example, you can say that you're in London or in New York, Uh, there is a point of the Earth's surface on which you stand. That would be considered your spatial position, your relation to that point. And all it means to say, when you say there's a space between two objects, is that they occupy two different positions. And in this case, you're basically focusing on two relationships. The relationship of one entity to its container, and, uh, and of another to its container simultaneously. So the universe, therefore, cannot be, quote, anywhere. Like, you can't say, can the universe be in Boston? Can the universe be in the Milky Way? Uh, Places are in the universe, not the other way around. And it's strange how some people think of it the other way. Because uh, that's why I think it's invalid uh, to ask when you say, when did the universe begin? Because both space and time exist within the universe, not outside it. And since time is a measurement of motion, that motion can only occur within an already existing universe. And if you think you're not moving all the time, you're moving at an incredible rate. Every second that we're on that you're listening to this show, you have moved fifteen miles just in just in terms of the orbit of the Earth around the Sun. And who knows how fast the Sun itself is moving in relation to something else. And of course the, the real standard of motion that we have to pick, the one thing that we consider that is fixed is the speed of light, and when you use that as a standard, that's how you can determine, I guess, the closest thing we could call to an absolute speed of something that's, you, you know, moving in the universe. Picoff asks then, is the universe then unlimited in size? No, he says, everything which is, which exists is finite, including the universe. When you ask, uh, uh, you know, what is, oh, sorry, what? The, you ask, is outside the universe if it is finite. The question is invalid, he says. There's nothing outside the universe. It has no reference. The universe is everything. Outside the universe stands for, if you wanted to say it another way, quote, that which is where everything isn't. And, of course, there is no such place. Just like I was saying earlier, uh, oh, about a year ago on the show, talking about how there's you know, no such thing as nothing. You know that saying? Ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, because if there were, wouldn't that be something? So... You know, there isn't even nothing out there. There is no out there in that sense. Now, there is a use of the concept of infinity, which is valid, as Aristotle observed, and that's in mathematical use. It's only valid when you indicate a potentiality, and that's, again, what uh, seems to be the case that they're arguing about in terms of what infinity actually represents, a potential. Never an actuality at any point in time, because, of course, you never reach the end you could take a series of numbers. I went through this, I think, a little bit last week. You can you know you can say it's infinite in the sense that no matter how many numbers you count, there's always another number. But uh, you can always keep on counting. There's just no end. And in that sense, it is infinite as a potential. But in reality, no matter how many numbers you count, you have to stop somewhere, and that becomes the the finite. Now, Ayn Rand herself uh, wrote on this, of course, too, and she she said said that the universe as a whole cannot be created or annihilated. It cannot come into or go out of existence. Whether its basic constituent elements are atoms or subatomic particles or some yet undiscovered forms of energy or matter, as the case may be, it is not ruled by a consciousness or by will or by chance, but by the law of identity. All the countless forms, motions, combinations, and dissolutions of elements within the universe, from a floating speck of dust to the formation of a galaxy to the emergence of life, are caused and determined by the identities of the elements involved nature is what is given or is what is called the metaphysically given the nature of nature is outside the power of any volition now i basically present information of this nature of course to to form a basis of knowledge from which ignorance hopefully can be turned into enlightenment and and thus serve as a protector, I guess, against junk science and junk politics and even junk religion, which are thrust upon us on a daily basis. And simply being aware, I think, of certain principles of nature is often all it takes not to fall into so many of the traps set you know, by uh, people who would set those traps for you, the people I'm going to call the bad people, which happens to be the upcoming subject that we shall turn to next right after this non-commercial break we'll be back right back after this according to our
1: best geologic estimate the earth is approximately 100 million years of age perhaps it is less perhaps more perhaps a great deal more indeed but regardless it is ancient in the extreme now geology also tells us that man himself has existed but for a microscopic fraction of those years. (laughs) Curious, isn't it, that the world got by for such a great long while with no humans around to fill up space. (laughs) I suppose Mr. Wallace and his supporters would say that the earth needed all that time to prepare itself for our illustrious arrival. The oyster alone probably required 15 million years to get it to come out just right. becomes a trivial creation does he not lost in the vastness of the cosmic prairie adrift drift on the deep ocean of time a single one amongst <laughs> countless others some may argue that a diamond is still a diamond even if it is one amongst millions it still shines as brightly Someone might say that, dear lady, if someone thought that the human race was akin to a precious jewel. But this uh, increasingly hypothetical someone would not be me.
0: (laughs) And nor might it be Al Gore who is the subject of my next uh, investigation here. Let's take a look at this. Uh, By the way, that clip was from, of course, an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, which coincidentally, I just checked the TV times today, that episode's playing tonight, part two, on the Space Channel, if you caught part one last night. And, of course, they went back in time, and that was an actor playing, uh, of course, uh, Samuel Clemens, otherwise known as Mark Twain. And, uh... Now, last week I, I, I told you my own personal Earth Day story, one leading to the declaration of my six-year-old grandson that his mother was one of the bad people, quote, because she didn't turn off all her lights during Earth Hour. And if you want to hear the whole story of that, that, of course, is online at www.justrightmedia.org, uh, where you can get the link to the show right here now live, too. But unbeknownst to me, at the time, last week, the day before our last broadcast, there appeared in the National Post an editorial by Peter Foster that virtually echoed my sentiments on the subject last week. And borrowing on George Orwell's 1984 term, Thought Crime, Foster's editorial is entitled Light Crime, in which he talked about the cloak of political correctness descending upon the whole environmental movement, and on Earth Day in particular. I'm going to skip all that part and get right to his concluding two paragraphs which state in theory what I experienced in practice last week and I quote meanwhile the young and naive were trotted out on Saturday night to demonstrate that they were being terrified into conformity either at home or at school earth hour is important to me because my kids and grandkids will be living on this earth declared Morgan Baskin age 12 at an event at Holy Trinity Church in downtown Toronto I don't want my kids to be around for the end of the earth, end quote. The end of the earth, that's what the 12-year-olds are being taught. It sure beats monsters in the closet, since the prospect will terrify them by day, as well as by night. And then he actually comes out and he says this. I was, I was almost going, wouldn't have gone this far, but he says it, and I'm going right along with it. This is child abuse. But this is also what environmental morality looks like. Uh, Indeed, just as 1984, it is the young who are the first to be targeted so that they can become, quote, spies, end quote. Educators freely admit that they tell children to pressure their parents. Fortunately, they don't yet have to report them, end quote. Now, of course, that's Peter Foster's uh, take on it. Now, last week, as in weeks before, I pointed out how reason and evidence are quite secondary to the environmental, you know, political motives, uh, that the issue has to be fought along moral, and not really on scientific or knowledge-based grounds. Now, uh, you know, last time, two weeks ago, I guess, we looked at this issue from a political point of view, and then last week we looked at it from more of a scientific point now. I want to take a bit of a look at it from the moral point, and here's the reason why. Listen to this quote. Quote, I'm trying to avoid the political situation, in part because I'm trying to lift this issue into a moral framework where I think it belongs." Now that's in the London Free Press, April 6, 2008, and that was a statement made by none other than Al Gore. And this Al Gore says, immediately after praising the Quebec government for introducing a carbon tax, a political move, if ever there was one, then places himself on this moral platform in an effort to bolster his otherwise unsupportable position. Quote, You know, this is Gore talking again, You know, CO2 is invisible and tasteless and odorless, and it comes with no price tag. So it's invisible to the economy. Gore said he would like to see a CO2 tax in the United States, so it becomes, quote, visible to the economy. End quote. Now, he couldn't have picked a more apt analogy. Here you have, on the one hand, the invisible hand of the free marketplace as contrasted to the very visible hand of government intervention. Talk about the symbolism. Invisible by its guarantee of reduced standards, not only of lifestyle and prosperity, but most importantly, of morality. And that's what happens when government gets into things. And... Then says Gore, quote, I'm going to try and stay out of Canadian politics. I'm even trying to stay out of U.S. politics these days, Gore said to chuckles at a news conference. (laughs) You know, all these knowing chuckles. It's almost as if Gore is using his own hypocrisy as a marketing tool to promote high taxes and state control, his anti-capitalist, his anti-consensual philosophy. Quebec's carbon tax, quote, uh, which kicked in last year directs revenues to initiatives supporting green technology. Now, allow me to translate what the statement really means. Is, you know what that statement, in theory, actually means. In practice, it means that the government, under threat of physical coercion, will forcibly take money from people who earned it, from people who might disagree with Gore's CO2 religion, and from people who might even have better ideas, both economic or environmental and hand that money over to the true believers, the morally and the politically correct, who engage in no debates, have closed all discussion on CO2, and blindly avoid all evidence and reason that would in any way weaken their beliefs. It means that CO2 believers do not have to prove anything, since CO2 is invisible, tasteless, odorless, costless. Well, we all know you can't see it, hear it, taste it, feel it, smell it, so just trust us, we know what we're doing, that's what they're telling us make no mistake what gore and his followers when, when gore and his followers say co2 what they really mean is capitalism and the free market system which is and always has been the ultimate target of quote the bad people the people who resort to force rather than to persuasion and in so doing they abandon all claims to morality since morality is about choice and choice is what the green movement is out to destroy so here's your equation CO2 equals capitalism and freedom. And CO2 is what the green mucus hordes want to reduce. And that means they want to give you less of capitalism and less of freedom and less of choice. The paper notes that Gore is in Montreal to, quote, attend an environmental training session. Now, I saw an article in the April 1st London Free Press that London MP Glenn Pearson is planning to attend Gore's Montreal conference to learn how to spread the global warming message. Quote, Climate Change Fighters Sign Up is the heading above the article by Randy Richmond, which also features side-by-side photos of Al Gore and Glenn Pearson. Now Pearson, the Liberal MP for London North Centre, will head to Montreal with about 200 other Canadians to learn how to spread the message. It's key for Canada's leaders to reignite interest in the environment, as it appears to be taking a backseat to the economy, Pearson said. The Climate Project is a non-profit volunteer group that began in the United States, focused on Gore's Academy Award-winning movie An Inconvenient Truth and his follow-up presentations. End quote. So in other words, it's going to be based on pure BS, misinformation, blind belief, and on the already false uh, allegations in Gore's movie, so false, in fact, that a British court had to rule the film as propaganda when they attempted to get his film into the British uh, school curriculum. Again, another issue I discussed on the show just days after Gore was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize on the very heels of that, of that uh, British court decision. Now, Liberal leader Stefan Dion has vowed to make CO2 and the environment a top burning issue of the Liberal Party platform going into the next election. Next election will be about the environment, Dion says, reads the April 3rd London Free Press headline. Of course, the next election is really going to be about Stefan Dion which is why he needs the climate change option to hopefully save him. Seems to, you know seems to be the place where all the losers congregate lately. Lose an election, you know, just go on the climate bandwagon. Quote, at the next election, it's unavoidable that the environment, climate change, the green revolution we need to make will be at the core of the campaign, said Dion. Dion made the remarks as he joined NDP leader Jack Layton, a socialist, completely anti-capitalistic, and Bloc uh, bloc Quebecois leader Gilles Duceppe, a nationalist socialist, a fascist for French, in signing a pledge to push the the Conservative government to honour Canada's Kyoto Protocol commitment. The Climate Action Network Canada, a coalition of environmental groups and labour unions, again, the usual group of anti-capitalists, there they all are, they also invited Prime Minister Stephen Harper and Environment Minister John Baird to sign the pledge, but they declined. This group has traditionally been a supporter of the Liberal Party. I'm more interested in action on reducing greenhouse gas emissions rather than cheap political stunts, said Baird. End quote. Now, Baird's response to the invitation suggests that he shares a liberal viewpoint on the environment, but, you know, he'd rather act than talk, which, of course, has been the history of the Conservative parties in Canada for many years now. I've already enumerated so many socialist policies brought into being by Conservative parties, from the introduction of income tax in Ontario circa 1969 to the banning of a multi-payer health care system, and on and on and on. Now, I wonder what Glenn Pearson will hear, and if it's going to sound anything like what was heard at an investment summit on climate change at the United Nations um, in New York recently. Capitalism will save the planet, experts say, reads the headline on the February 19th National Post article written by Janet Whitman. Quote, Money is already pouring into environmental initiatives and technologies in the United States. Experts expect investment in the area to explode over the next few years if, as anticipated, the government here imposes restrictions on the release of gases believed to be behind climate change. Capitalism will drive this, said Vinod Kozla, founding chief executive of Sun Microsystems, and speaking on a panel at the summit. He said getting consumers to curb their energy use has never worked unless they've had a financial incentive. If we make it economic, it will happen, he said, end quote. Now, the average person might read this and conclude that somehow the environmentalists have suddenly gone on the side of capitalism and free enterprise. The fact that private money may be invested in so-called greener technologies, though, does not mean that that money is operating within a free capitalistic framework. Let's face it, the very idea of carbon taxes is socialistic and very anti-capitalistic to begin with. And to say that investment is pouring in because the government will impose restrictions is, again, not a free capitalistic framework, particularly because there's no objective guidelines or measurements on which to base any legitimate restrictions, such as, you know, such as pouring known poisons into the water or atmosphere. That's a different story. In this case, they're talking about gases, not even just CO2, I don't know what they mean, but believed, not known, to be behind climate change. as it's change now, not warming, so they can keep taxing you whether the weather gets cold or it gets warm. Now, restrictions based on belief and on an abandonment of reason, debate, and sound evidence are irrational. It doesn't belong in a capitalist society. So when a so-called venture capitalist like Vinod Kozla speaks to the UN and suggests that getting consumers to curb their energy use has never worked unless they've had a financial incentive, he's really disguising the fact that what he's really talking about in both cases is a financial disincentive. That's what carbon taxes are all about governments are, you know, metaphysically incapable of giving incentives to anyone, anywhere, anyhow, can't be done. You know, dogs don't meow and cats don't bark. Government has no power to give anything to anyone that it didn't take away from somebody else in the first place. And the people who talk about government incentives, the bad people, are notorious for ignoring those from whom they take without consent, because to acknowledge them would expose the terrible morality on, what their, on which their incentives are all based. A government big enough to give you everything you want is also big enough to take away everything you have, goes the old saying. So, you know, I'm kind of uh, glad that Al Gore staked out the moral high ground on this issue. It makes him an open, invited target for moral judgment. And, and I know you've all heard it, oh, judge not lest ye be judged. Which does not, ladies and gentlemen, mean, gentlemen, mean not to judge others, but be prepared to be judged yourself once you start pronouncing judgments. And the lines are always open here. You can always call in and debate my judgment if you care to do so. But I think it's against any objective, life-affirming morality that Gore can be most easily knocked down. Although I don't think that would deter any political success he might have since there are millions of other people who have also staked out their religious turf and will not budge from it. Now... In his March 27th National Post editorial, A Convenient Untruth, McLean's columnist, Andrew Potter, calls those that I've just labeled the bad people, he calls them declinists, the ones that, you know relating to the environment. And he, and he calls their animating animating philosophy, I like that, declinism. And I'm just going to quote a little bit from that article here. Quote, What motivates declinism is an attitude so pessimistic that it is almost theological. Not only are things worse than they used to be, but they're getting worse with every passing year. Furthermore, the Declinist believes that the various strategies that are usually proposed for making things get uh, get better, the, the promotion of liber- liberal democracy, technological development, and economic growth, cannot be the solution to our problems since they are actually the cause. As the Declinist sees it, the rights-based model of liberal individualism, combined with the free market economy, have served to undermine local attachments and communitarian feelings, leading us to seek meaning. In, in, in shallow consumerism and mindless entertainments, there's no point in arguing with declinism because it's not a set of empirical positions, but an ideology. Over the past hundred years, life has got steadily better by almost any conceivable measure. Life expectancy rose while infant mat- mortality dropped. The air quality of our cities improved. Our food got cheaper and more nutritious. And the workplace became safer as wages steadily climbed. If you have any questions as to the era of progress, ask yourself one question. Given a choice, when would you rather have been born? 1900? or 2000. And before we continue with that, we've got a caller online. And I believe that caller's name is Paul. Hello, Paul. Can you hear me? Can't hear him. Is he gone, Tara? Hello. Hello. Now I can hear you. Okay. Okay. We got you. Carry on, Paul. Yeah.
2: Hi, Bob. I, uh, it's Paul McKeever calling from Freedom Party. Hi, Paul. Well,
0: you're <laughs> the last Paul I expected to hear from.
2: Sure. Well, I'm listening in live, and I thought, uh-huh. wow, what a great time to call because what a topic. Um, One thing that you brought to mind, you were talking about the religion, Yes. and uh, it brought to mind, uh, I recently read uh, a speech given by Elizabeth May, and there are just a few excerpts I think that would be really helpful uh, in putting this all in context. She begins her her lecture, this was given a couple of years ago, October 6, I think it was, it was called the Killam lecture, Mm K-I-L-L-A-M lecture. Anyway, she says, I take from my text a history of the world uh, for Martian infant schools by Lord Bertrand Russell, quote, Ever since Adam ate the apple, man has refrained from no folly of which he was capable. The end. So immediately she's connecting knowledge with folly. Mm -hmm. And she says, the issue of climate change, sometimes called global warming, demands of us that we refrain from folly. Which, you know, implicitly means refrain from reason. Right. She goes on then and says, both, uh, she's talking a couple books, and she says they both, chronicle the self-destructive tendencies of the amazing primate known as man. So we're monkeys, and, mm-hmm. and little more. Um, from the very location of the Garden of Eden, uh, dot, 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 um, humanity has a worrying history of outrunning its ecological limits, living beyond the Earth's carrying capacity and crashing as a result. It is the Industrial Revolution that has allowed us to live beyond the immediate limitations of local food production, that has created consumer, manufactured goods in vast leisure time that has allowed the human population to balloon from 1.2 billion in 1850 to over 6 billion today. And she closes off her, her uh, lecture with the following. We must be mature spiritual beings who can think beyond the end of our nose. If we are lucky and very smart, we can rewrite Russell's history of the world to say that humanity rejected folly and that we returned to the garden. Effectively, she's saying that reason and, and industry and all of the things that reason has brought us have resulted in us being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, have led to this population explosion, and that what we've got to do is reverse everything, become unindustrialized, deindustrialized, and stop trying to be so bold and, and uh, conceited as to think that human reason and the, the industry that it permits is the right way to go. What we really need to do is turn off our minds Stop producing things, reduce our population, and then maybe, just maybe, God will let us back into his little happy home. Yeah, where li- live right to back.
0: Free, Paul. You, your your call couldn't have been more timely. Wait till you hear the next clip that's coming up. Was that about all you wanted to say, there, Paul? Well, I just wanted yeah. to point out
2: yeah. how very religious, in fact, explicitly religious yes. um, these uh, green leaders are.
0: Okay. Well, thanks very much. Thank you. And uh, that was Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, of course, who was also a guest on this show. Oh, about. A year ago now and uh, you can get that show online as well and uh you know it, he, paul's point was very right on and 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 uh, elizabeth may has just confirmed everything that everyone else is saying as well they want to go back to this garden of eden to this place uh where you know life was just great in the past well what a perfect place to break for the next break and we'll be back right after this i think you'll get the message <laughs>
3: Now, this lush, green paradise is a real place, of course. It's the Waiapo Valley in Hawaii. When people these days say, we'd be happier if we lived closer to nature, the Waipo Valley is the kind of place they're
1: talking about. A lot of fish, the ocean right there, a lot of wild fruits and everything, oh, you cannot beat them.
3: But in real life, it seems the valley is not everyone's idea of paradise thousands of people used to live here but most left living at one with nature just wasn't easy one of the few who stayed is Linda Beach thirty years ago she had this treehouse built because she wanted to be close to nature
1: all the things that you say are complete
3: but then she decided she needed a phone and she had running water installed but only she says
1: because mother nature gave me the permission And the water came out. Holy Moses. I had running water. Can you imagine? Oh,
2: running water.
3: (laughs) Some argue that it would be better if she and all of us lived a more genuinely primitive life. even romanticize America's good old days. We were taught to think of Thanksgiving as a happy time. But what was life then really like? This is a recreation of Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts. We think of the pilgrims living in quaint houses, happily doing their chores. In reality, life for the pilgrims was cruel and hard. Half of them died the first year. Died of malnutrition or exposure to the elements. It was even worse in Jamestown the settlers ate rats, dogs, horses, cats, trying not to starve, yet most died anyway. And even if we know that the first settlers struggled, we tend to think that the Indians were just happily at one with nature. After all, Hollywood's been telling us that. In the movie Dances with Wolves, it's clear that nature is the Indians' friend. Even the music is warm and happy. And that's how life was, say these Indians. That was the good life? Yes. Better than the way we live today? Yes. Linda Coombs and Darrell Wixon reenact Indian life for tourists at the Plymouth Recreation. Their ancestors were among the Indians who greeted the pilgrims. Do you wish Europeans had never come? In some ways, yes, I do. I wish that things were the way they were before. Europeans brought some good things, right? What about modern dentistry? In Dances with Wolves, the elderly Indians have straight white teeth. In real life, they wouldn't have even had teeth. How do you know that? It's modern medicine that's made our lives better. Researchers now say most Indians didn't even live to age 40. Life is so much better today. You can eat without having to work all day in the fields. You have hot water coming out of the faucets. You don't like that? Not necessarily, no. But you're not turning them down. You have running water in your house. Yeah, there's running water in my house. Not by choice. Not by choice? No. But why don't you have the choice? Because the society today doesn't allow that to happen. You wear blue jeans when you're not working here. Nobody says you have to do that. I actually like blue jeans. It's about the as I do like. Blue jeans is all that's good about modern life? Come on! Any of us could go out here and live in the woods, but most of us don't, because we like what tampering with nature gives us.
0: Yes, we do, don't we? And by the way, one of the things that uh, you couldn't see, because this was a television broadcast originally, was the actual statistics about life expectancy for the early Indian bands. And uh, I think uh, John Stossel's was being a little <laughs> generous when he said age 40, because here's what was on the screen at the time. Uh, life expectancy, Tidewater Potomac, 20.9 years. Mississippi, 29 years, Texas, 30.5, and Minnesota, 47.5, which brought up the average of the other bands. And, of course, you can uh, see the whole point of everyone wanting to get back, back to nature. And just to continue with uh, just the conclusion of the article that we were talking about just before the break, I uh, just wanted to finish that up, where he concludes, say, the writer concludes, Declinism is both a sin and a betrayal. It is a sin because it displays an utter lack of faith in humanity, believing that we will inevitably abuse the gifts of freedom, knowledge, and power, and become agents of our own destruction. Isn't that exactly what Elizabeth May said, according to Paul there? It's a betrayal of modern modernity and of the liberal ideals that have breathed life and hope into human progress for the past 400 years. It is a resentment of modernity, the Declinist left, or sorry, in its resentment, the, cl- the, the declinist left finds itself in agreement with a broad spectrum of Islamo-fascists, evangelical nuts, and tin foil hat anarchists who equally fear the globalized future and pray for a return to a glorious but thoroughly imaginary past. They say that politics makes for strange bedfellows, but when it comes to the politics of declinism, the sleeping arrangements are positively perverted, end quote. And for my part, I'll say, let us not forget Dion, Leighton, and Ducep all sleeping in the same anti-capitalist bed. What they all have in common is their mutual contempt for capitalism and the freedom of citizens. And, and by, by that, they mean name, namely freedom from them. But what they don't share in common, lucky for us, is their particular brand of socialism, since once you enter that world of subjectivism, you know, and make believe the options uh, that don't coincide with reality and reason are virtually infinite. And that's why you find that there are so many uh, divisions on the left, far more than you'd find even on any right type of spectrum, of political parties and, of course, even of religions, as has been the topic of past shows. Now, one declinist who declined comment on the subject was none other than Toronto Mayor David Miller, known as the city's Green Mayor, and who had been hyping up the whole Earth Hour nonsense prior to the event. Apparently, though, instead of observing the lights-out period during the designated time of Earth Hour, Miller was out at 8.15 p.m. buying gift cards in a very well-lit shopper's drug mart on Eglinton Avenue West, according to the National Post article written by Peter Kutenbrauer on April 2nd. Quote, He bought a, car, a card for the bar mitzvah of a family friend. Then he got back in the car, driven by his press secretary, and went to a bar mitzvah. The mayor did this during Earth Hour after having called upon Torontonians to, quote, join me in the dark, end quote. The city of Toronto was one of three local sponsors of Earth Hour, a global campaign to get people to turn out their lights and consume a minimum of energy from uh, from 8 to 9 p.m. on March 29th. The issue is real. Your actions will count, so join me in the dark, he says. And the article goes on to, you know, rub Miller's face in his own words and actions, and it's just ouch, you know. Uh, another environmental leader, Lawrence Solomon of Energy Probe, said, I'm delighted that the mayor is hypocritical on earth hour, but I wish he wouldn't be hypocritical the rest of the year. In the National Post editorial of April 2nd adds, we can only guess what the Toronto mayor really meant to say, was that, you know, regular folks should sit in the dark rather than busy and important people like him. If Mr. Miller truly believed that spending earth hour in the shadows does count, then he should have stayed in the dark as promised. Instead, he went about his business quite normally, secure in the knowledge that he had done his bit by patronizingly imploring the rest of us to turn off our lights, end quote. And you know, I'm also reminded of all the articles chastising Al Gore, remember, for his huge environmental footprint? I mean, his personal monthly electric bill for his home was revealed to be, you know, top over $20,000 a month, and yet he's going around forcing people who are spending like next to nothing or scrimping to pay for their electric bill and telling them to cut back, eh? Imagine that. Now, you know, for a final word on global warming here, um, one a bit removed from the moral dimension, I guess, I couldn't help notice uh, National Post columnist Lauren Gunter's February 25th article where he says, Forget global warming, welcome to the new ice age, in which he notes that the U.S. National Climatic Data Center has reported that many American cities and towns suffered record cold temperatures in January and early February. According to the group, the average temperature in January was 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than the whole 19th or the 20th century average. China is surviving its most brutal winter in a century. And remember the Arctic sea ice? The ice we were told so hysterically last fall had melted to its lowest levels on record? Well, never mind that those records only date back as far as 1972 and that there is anthropological and geological evidence of much greater melts in the past. But anyways, the ice is back, end quote. Gunter then goes on to cite two different research and science groups that have proposed quite different co- contributing causes to climate change. Uh, the very two I've always maintained from the, the beginning have the most profound effect on Earth's climate, and that's the sun and the oceans, of course, like duh. Duh. According to two prominent climate modelers, Robert Togweiler of the Geophysical, or, yeah, Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory at Princeton University and Jolin Russell, Assistant Professor of Biochemical Dynamics at the University of Arizona, it appears that we have been missing the obvious. Quote, we miss what was right in front of our eyes, says Professor Russell. It's not ice melt, but rather wind circulation that drives ocean currents northward from the tropics. Climate models until now have not accounted for the wind's effects on ocean circulation. So researchers have compensated by overemphasizing the role of man-made warming on the polar ice melt. When they rejigged their model to include the 40-year cycle of winds away from the equator, and then back towards it again, the role of ocean currents bringing warm southern waters to the north was obvious in the current Arctic warming. Which is really interesting, because I remember earlier on the show reading a critique of, of the critics who was saying that they couldn't account for all of the, uh, the ice melting based on the climate of the earth, on the air. And I remember specifically speculating that it had to be something under the ice then. It's got nothing to do with the air above it, and sure enough, now they're finding that's what it is. And again, uh, last month, Oleg Solkertin, a fellow of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences, shrugged off man-made climate change as a, quote, drop in the bucket showing that solar activity has entered in an inactive phase. The professor advised people to stock up on fur coats, and he is not alone. Kenneth Tapping of our own National Research Council, who oversees a giant radio telescope focused on the sun, is convinced we're in for a long period of severely cold weather if sunspot activity does not pick up soon. End quote, So there you have it, folks. The uncertainty of climate change is a fact of nature, and basically, you know, to fight it uh, is to behave unnaturally. Uh, it's just ridiculous, it's tasteless, costless, odorless, and basically, you know, I I know there's still people who are out there who are unsure of the difference between CO2 and CO, carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide. I hear people confuse them all the time. Well, carbon monoxide is the stuff that comes out of cars, is toxic, it causes pollution, and when concentrated in large amounts, uh, and is not the principal subject of Kyoto, since technology has pretty well solved that problem and which also explains why Los Angeles doesn't declare smog days anymore. Carbon dioxide, on the other hand, is the gas you and all living mammals on the planet exhale when you breathe, and that plants and vegetation inhale, as it were, who in turn produce oxygen, which is one of the fuels that our bodies need to survive. And of course, human beings are carbon-based. Hello, you know, from a physics point of view, our bodies are internal combustion engines that burn fuel. And that fuel is food and water, and the burning agent is oxygen, which is why most combustible chemicals have to be combined with oxygen to burn. All of life depends on this process, not just at the biological level, but at the level of human production as well. You want to bend a piece of metal to shape some human purpose? You're going to need heat. You're going to need fire. You want to combine raw elements of the earth to make new metals and fabrics that will suit a human purpose? You'll need heat you're going to have to require fire. Even nature makes the elements that way. That that comes out of supernovas and stars that explode because of the pressure and the heat that create new elements. So, you know, the bottom line is we are uh, basically carbon beings and if you're going to be against carbon, I mean, how much more <laughs> it's more than symbolic you're against human beings. Now when we come back after this, a little bit about uh, truth and politics right after this break. Went to the zoo the other day. You ever ever go
3: not to watch the animals? You ever go just to watch people trying to call over an animal they don't know what sound it makes? (laughs) So what do we do? We all resort to that sound. We think all the animals will instinctively be attracted to...
1: camel the Czech Republic home of those great heroes Vaclav Havel, Alexander Dubček men who were knocked down by the communists, but they came back up
0: Two Czechs that bounce. <laughs> Welcome back. And it's Czech President Václav Klaus, who was in the news recently again this week. And if some of you will recall, I read some of his uh, comments in detail on a show. Oh, must have been almost a year ago. But someone else has noticed him recently, and that was George Jonas in his March 15th National Post column, entitled Truth is the First Casualty of Activism. Quote, future dangers will not come from the same source, says Czech President Vaclav Klaus in an address delivered at Prague Castle this week. Speaking at the 60th anniversary of the communist takeover of the former Czechoslovakia, the president said, quote, the ideology will be different. Its essence will nevertheless be identical an attractive, at first sight, noble idea that transcends the individual in the name of the common good and the enormous self-confidence on the side of its proponents about their right to sacrifice man and his freedom in order to make his idea reality. What I had in mind, of course, was environmentalism and its present strongest version, climate alarmism, end quote, says the Czech president. Indeed, responds George Jonas, there are many systems of social philosophy built on the proposition that public causes transcend individual freedoms, interests, or morality. Lying in a good cause is okay. So is coercion. The main champions of this proposition used to be Marxists and Nazis, but it doesn't take a Marxist or Nazi to bully and lie. Just about any activist can do it. So can any official carrying out social policy. The current champions may be the climate alarmists of the environmental movement, but anti-smoking crate crusaders come a close second, says Jonas. Uh, and of course, this is on the heels of McGuinty banning secondhand smoke in Ontario, of course, eh? And you've heard about that. We covered that on the show. But here's what uh, Jonas has discovered about that. He says, a key lie continues to be that health hazards of secondhand smoke have been scientifically established. In 1986, U.S. Surgeon General C. Everett Koop made a flat statement that the effects of secondhand smoke were responsible for 2,000 deaths in the United States. But when he was challenged by scientists, he blithely blithely retreated, saying that while he may have pulled the figure out of a hat, it was all in a good cause. A 1987 study by the American National Academy of Sciences found no evidence that secondhand smoke jeopardizes the health of non-smokers. One field study concluded that a non-smoker would have to sit behind an office desk for 550 continuous hours before being exposed to the nicotine equivalent of a single cigarette. In 1993, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency took the official position that secondhand cigarette smoke is a health hazard responsible for 3,000 lung cancer deaths in the U.S. But five years later, Federal, Justice, uh, Federal District Judge William Osteen ruled in 1998, that the EPA publicly committed to a conclusion before research had begun, and that the EPA disregarded information and made findings on very selective information. The EPA defended itself by saying it had never claimed that minimal exposure to secondhand smoke posed a huge individual cancer risk. It only said, unlike a smoker who chooses to smoke, the non-smoker's risk was often involuntary, end quote. Now suddenly, you see this? We have the EPA throwing in the fake uh, we're on the side of capitalism and consent argument you know, into the debate. Well, the other person's not choosing. We've got to make sure he can choose. And so in order to do that, they take away his choice, of course. Quote, it was a splendid illustration of how regulators whose stock and trade is removing people's choices can blithely cast themselves as protectors of choice, of volition. Don't smoking bans replace volition altogether? Unsmelking or un- unhealthy as smoking is, it's not half as unhealthy as politicized science concludes. Jonas, and with that we can, you know, tip our hats and tilt our glasses to offer a toast to Dalton McGinty for breaking yet another promise and bringing us secondhand smoking bans in cars for children under 18, and we covered that in detail in the past as well. Truth is. Only a casualty, I think, of activism when the activism is divorced from reality, which of course is the arbiter of truth. There are activists who prefer working in the real world, but they're too often drowned out by those seeking other goals by political means, and reality isn't exactly popular these days, especially among those who have avoided it so faithfully in the name of their particular prohibition that they would like to foist on society. So why do politicians so often lie? I will answer in one sentence before we conclude. Because they're trying to please all the people all the time. And by pleasing any two sides of an issue, you've got to be lying to at least one of them, if not both. (laughs) So isn't that true? That's it for this week, folks, as we wrap up another show. And we hope you'll join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, act right, do right! And think right. Take care.
1: Into color color it to black and white. Under the
0: everything will be all right. Grandpa wants to go back to high school now to finish his diploma. You know, he saw this guy in the paper, 75-year-old. He went back to high school to finish his diploma. And I'm like, Grandpa, I mean, if you all all you guys go back to high school like that, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who's gonna feed the birds? <laughs>
2: It's very important. I love birds. Sometimes I envy the birds. They're so well off. Birds spend their winter down south, come back here in the summer.
0: Winter down south, summer in Canada, down south Canada, down south Canada. Some say the birds are migrating. Come on. They're just following the old people who feed them all summer long. Florida, Canada,
2: Florida, Canada, Canada, Florida, Canada.